As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Eco Chic. It is so great to have you here today. We're having a conversation with one of my very favorite content creators today about one of my very favorite deep dive topics. Today we're joined by my friend Teal Leto. She goes by the name Western Water Girl on TikTok and she has made a really serious splash, no pun intended, or maybe pun intended, that was a pretty good one on my part, but Teal has made a really great impression on the internet when it comes to talking about the mega drought and the Western water crisis. She has over 54,000 followers on TikTok, 1.1 million likes. She is really doing major work to bring public awareness to the crisis that we have at hand. I have done a couple of episodes in the past on the mega drought of the West. I'm going to go ahead and link some episodes in the show notes if you want more information about the drought in general or more information about fire season and the drought and more about what's going on geographically, I suppose. But today's conversation is really focused on the Colorado River Basin and the water crisis that we have at hand. So I want to set the scene for us a little bit before we get into today's conversation with Teal. The Colorado River Basin consists of seven states, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, California, Nevada, and the country of Mexico. A river basin is a drainage area for land where all of the flowing surface water converges into a single point. So all of the Colorado River Basin water comes from, presumably, the Colorado River. So when we talk about the Colorado River Basin and those seven states I just mentioned, plus the country of Mexico, we are talking about the water for a very, very significant portion of the U.S. and, again, the country of Mexico. We're talking about water that impacts about half of the country geographically. Even if you don't live near physically the Colorado River, you may live closer to one of its tributaries. And again, all of this water is ultimately derived from the Colorado River. A tributary is kind of like an offshoot of a major river. It is a freshwater stream that feeds into a larger stream or a larger river system. And the Colorado River has 25 tributaries. So there is a lot of water coming out of this one single source. Some of the larger, more significant tributaries that you may be familiar with are perhaps the Green River in Utah. That is the largest tributary from the Colorado River. In Utah, you also have the Dolores River and the San Juan River. In Arizona, you have the Little Colorado and the Gila River. In the state of Colorado, we also have the Gunnison River. In Nevada, you have the Virgin River. So again, these are a lot of water sources all pulling from the same major water source, which again is the Colorado River starts between Colorado and Wyoming. 
And the vast majority of the discharge of the river originates from the melting snowpack of the Rocky Mountains in that area. There are a lot of dams along the Colorado River, which Teal discusses in great detail during today's conversation. The one that I think most people think of when they think of the Colorado River is the Hoover Dam outside of Las Vegas. And there are quite a few reservoirs along the Colorado River, too, that are fed into by these dams. So the ones that we talk about most primarily in this conversation today are Lake Mead and Lake Powell. Especially last summer, we spoke a lot about Lake Mead and Lake Powell in the news because they are really unfortunately at critical levels where we've never seen these reservoirs so, so low. So it's not just an issue of the drought that we're currently in in the West. The worst drought that we've experienced in the last 1,200 years we have on record have occurred in the last 22 years in specific. Again, I'll have more information on the drought down below if you want to get into that. But it's also an issue of climate change. It's also an issue of reduced snow melt. It's also an issue of overconsumption and poor conservation, which is what we talk about very in-depth in today's conversation as well. So I know that was a lot of information to throw at you, but I really want to set the scene. When we talk about the Colorado River, we talk specifically today a lot about the state of Colorado, just because that's where Teal and I are both located. But there are millions and millions of people that are impacted by this. So again, Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, California, Nevada, and the entire country of Mexico. There are so many people dependent on the Colorado River Basin And there is a serious problem we have when it comes to how much water we have and how much water we're using and the solutions we actually have at hand to not just conserve water and make sure that people can continue sustaining their qualities of life now, but also avoid the very real possibility of our Western water system collapsing. I am really so, so excited for you to listen into this conversation that I had with Teal Again, I love her content. I am so deeply thankful to have gotten to know her via the internet. I do feel like we're friends and I really, really love the work that she does. She is such a powerful science communicator. And if you have never learned from her before, I got to tell you, you are in for a treat today. I love what she has to share. I'm so thankful that she was able to share her knowledge with us. And again, we go through a lot of different kind of facets of the problem with the Western water crisis that opened my mind up to so many different issues that I didn't even realize were so deeply interconnected. So I hope you learned something from this episode. I hope you really enjoy it. If you do, share it with a friend, share it on your Instagram story, share it with the family group chat. It's a really great, fabulous, value-packed one that I know someone else in your life will love. If you are listening to the show on a podcast app, which is how you're listening to this wherever you are, so if that's Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, whatever it may be, make sure you're subscribed to the show and you can leave me a rating and a review wherever you're listening, especially if you're on Spotify because that rating system is a little bit new. So I want to get the ratings up over there too. I also want to say I have some book recommendations from Teal, books that have been on my want to read list that she's already read and she's told me great things about. I can link them in the show notes as well. One of them is called The Emerald Mile And it is about this incredible rafting trip during the one time that the tributary offshoots of the Colorado River were used. And we do talk about that kind of moment in history during the conversation today. And the other one is called Where the Water Goes, Life and Death Along the Colorado River. She said that is her, quote, favorite book of all time. So I'm going to link those down below. They're books that I've been really interested in reading and that she gave glowing reviews of as well. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation about the Western water crisis with the Western water girl herself, Teal Leto. Enjoy. 
I'd love to start off just talking a little bit about the social media landscape around water. Tell me a little bit about how you got into sharing this information online. Absolutely. Well, I've always had, you know, my own personal Instagram platform and I talked about the things that I cared about, which generally involved water on that platform. And in college, I had like a club that was dedicated to water resource issues. And so it kind of gave me like a background on like where most people are entering the conversation and what basic understanding most people are lacking. And then in 2021, I was in an REI co-op studios film titled Spirit of the Peaks, uh, which was all about the idea of land back and reciprocity in the San Juan mountain range, which is where I live. It was really focused on like indigenous rights and the extractive nature of the outdoors industry and lands that originally belonged to indigenous people. And my role in that film was as a water rights activist. So I was talking about my experience in college and all of that. And the skier who uh, put together the film, his name is Connor Ryan, and he's a Lakota tribal member. He's a member of a collective called Natives Outdoors, the director of which is a gentleman named Len Nessifer. And Len and Connor were like, you have a lot to say and you should find somewhere to say it. And I kept sharing things on my personal page. And then finally, I was like, I'm going to start my own platform. And I noticed that the general social media landscape for like water management is boring. Like it's not stuff that people really want to look at. It's just really boring stats. The people who are running these pages are very clearly at best, very elder millennials, probably closer to like Gen X or boomers. And they just really don't understand that like there's a huge gaping chasm in the media landscape for water because they're not using social media the way it's meant to be. So that's kind of the the like niche I saw and tried to fill. I think that's a great description, first of all, of the social media landscape. I feel like of environmental issues in general, especially water, because there's also a little bit of a stigma that talking about these environmental issues or talking about things with a sense of urgency, even when it comes to the environment, is not sexy. Like you think that people don't care, but it's not necessarily that people don't care. It's that they don't have access to this information in a digestible way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I studied the environment in college. My uh, degree is in environmental studies and political science, but I went to a liberal arts school, which meant that I could kind of pick like whatever classes I wanted to take. I only had like a handful of core classes that were environmental studies. And I chose to take principles of marketing. And it was one of the most helpful classes I took because it was really focused on selling an idea to people. And that's what we need to do in the environmental space. We have to sell the idea of like environmental protection and climate change and what's happening to our listeners. And I don't think we're making that a very good sales pitch right now. I agree. I agree. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions that people come to your page with? So when you're presenting information about the Western water crisis, what are the things that people just have been incorrectly led to believe? Oh my goodness. Honestly, I wish I could pin a comment on every single one of my videos explaining how little water golf uses. I know golf is like this like sport that like we've all collectively as Gen Z decided represents like why we need to eat the rich, but like it isn't really using that much water. And like the thing is, I'm actually not a huge fan of golf to begin with. Like there's other reasons I don't really like it as a sport, but like it doesn't use that much water. In general, people don't use that much water. Um, I think 
The second biggest misconception, and it's related to the golf thing, is people will say, like, why are we still building cities? Or, like, Las Vegas shouldn't exist. And the reality is that cities use between, like, 8 and 11% of the water in the basin. So they really don't use all that much water. And cities like, like Las Vegas is one that always gets pointed out as, like, they need to get their shit together or whatever. But, like, Vegas is leading the world on water reclamation. Literally every drop of water that's used indoors in Vegas is recycled. And they not only recycle that water, but they're doing like this huge riparian ecological corridor restoration project with that recycled water. And it all goes back into Lake Mead. And they also built an intake on Lake Mead below Deadpool like 10, 15 years ago because they saw this coming. And they're Typically, uh, the people who are running the Southern Nevada Water Authority, which also run water for Vegas, are on the vanguard of asking for conservation changes within the basin. So it's just really funny to me because it's really like pointed to as this like boogeyman when like they're really not the problem. Vegas, I think, is my favorite case study of water reclamation done right or just environmental issues being taken seriously at a local level. And I think a lot of people also don't realize that that resort fee, like there are so many built-in kind of tax incentives in Las Vegas to make sure that these environmental causes are taken seriously and really well-funded. So it's not cities, as we know, and it's not golf courses. I think golf courses is the one I hear a lot. It's like, if we just got rid of all the golf courses in Arizona, we wouldn't have a drought, but that's also not the case. So I feel like there's also this now big gaping hole. Where is this 90% of the water we're using up? Absolutely. So uh, 10% goes to industrial uses, which would be like oil and gas, mining. Um, That's another misconception I get is people say like Nestle needs to stop stealing our water. And like that would fall under that 10% of industrial use. So it's really not that much. The 10% also includes like beverage production. So like Coors, that's another one people point out. It's like Coors is taking a ton of water. They have a very old water, right? Um, But agriculture accounts for 80% of the water consumed in the basin. And in the state of Colorado, it's actually closer to like 89% of the water that's consumed. It's really, really, really difficult to find really clear data on exactly which crops are consuming that water. But the Southern Nevada Water Authority has put out data suggesting that at least 60% of the water in the basin is being used to grow forage crops, which are like hay, alfalfa, Sudan grass, stuff like that. And it's also very difficult to discern exactly where that feed is going. But in Utah, at least, I know that a third of the alfalfa that is grown in the state of Utah is exported. So it's sent to China or Saudi Arabia or elsewhere. So really, like we have created a system of water management that like prioritizes water intensive crops because you can get multiple cuttings in one season. You can make a lot of money off of it. But it's just so funny, though, because people are really convinced that cities and it's like really cows are using most of that water. This is fascinating. I have two immediate thoughts when we talk about water intensive crops. I feel like the incentive for using as much water as we currently are in agriculture is typically assumed to be subsidies. We have a system that has allowed us to really desensitize ourselves, I suppose, from the price of crops, from the true price of using as much water as we are. So could we talk for a second about subsidies? Is that really as big a deal as I believe it to be? Absolutely. So I went down this rabbit hole again, and I think that this is intentional. A lot of this data is like really hard to find or it's state by state or county by county. There's not really like 
a big collective um, inventory of, of these kinds of things. But I can tell you that as far as subsidies go with alfalfa and other cattle feed crops, the federal government actually doesn't provide that many subsidies directly to those growers, but it does to the people who are buying the alfalfa. So the federal government provides an insane amount of subsidies for like the dairy industry. And a lot of the cattle that are consuming this alfalfa are in that dairy industry. And those farmers would not be incentivized to grow that alfalfa for those cattle if there wasn't a strong subsidy system set up for the dairy farmers. So it's it's not directly connected, but it is. It's definitely playing a factor. I live in a rural agricultural community. I am like wholeheartedly support. We need agricultural communities and I don't want them to disappear. The movie Rango is like literally my, my worst nightmare for the West. But we do all, every single person needs to instill a conservation ethic towards their water use, no matter what industry they're in. But that doesn't mean I'm like not supportive of that industry. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Quick break to tell you about a brand that has massively upgraded my life. We're talking about Caraway. I love to cook. I love to try out new recipes. One of my New Year's resolutions was to just cook more at home and be a little bit more adventurous in the kitchen. I knew that it was time to trade in my cookware. Caraway makes the most beautiful non-toxic kitchenware so you can ditch the chemicals and make healthy cooking a piece of cake. With our exclusive discount, you can now save on the full suite of Caraway products, including food storage, tea kettles, and the mini cookware. I feel like the Caraway cookware set is a little bit internet famous. I knew that when I was looking for new cookware, Caraway is where I wanted to turn. It comes in multiple colors, it fits any design aesthetic, and they're beautiful, beautiful non-toxic pieces. Again, I have the cream color in all of their items. I've become someone who leaves my Dutch oven on the stove, even when I'm not using it because it's just that beautiful. Caraway Homes non-toxic kitchenwares are all designed for the modern home and feature a chemical-free ceramic coating. So food can be prepared with the peace of mind that there are no weird compounds leaching into your healthy ingredients. I also want to mention that this chemical-free ceramic coating makes the Caraway cookware so, so easy to clean. The ceramic is naturally a slick surface, so there's really minimal oil or butter required for whatever it is that you're cooking. But again, it makes it so, so easy to clean and it makes cooking feel like so much less of a chore. You really spend so much more time enjoying what you're doing in the kitchen. You can visit carawayhome.com slash ecochic to take advantage of this limited time offer for 10% off your next purchase. This deal is exclusive to our listeners, so visit carawayhome.com slash ecochic or use code ecochic at checkout. Caraway non-toxic cookware made modern. 
interesting. Interesting. Okay. And then the second term I wanted to talk to you about that you just mentioned was water rights. You mentioned that very often Coors is pointed as someone who's using a lot of water in the Colorado basin, but they have a very old water right. What does that mean? What is a water right? What does it mean to have a very old water right, especially? Absolutely. So just to kind of like zoom out a little, if you take the United States and split it smack dab in half, basically, the eastern half of the United States is governed by one doctrine of water rights and the western half is governed by a completely separate doctrine of water rights. Here in the West, we use the doctrine of prior appropriation, which is a really fancy way of saying first in time, first in right. So the first person who diverts water from a stream lake, river, whatever it is, has a right to that water before anybody who diverts it after them, even if that water is not on their property. And I know that doesn't make a ton of sense, but the reason that happened is because in the 1860s, we passed a law called the Homestead Act, which said anybody could move to the West and get 160 acres of free stolen from indigenous people land. And as long as they agreed to farm it, they had to make it usable or arable. And John Wesley Powell was this explorer who came and explored the West and like before that, and then kind of like after that as well. And he basically was like, yo, there is not enough water out here for that. Like literally only 2% of the land out here has water that's like directly on the property. So like we can't do that. And so what the government did to respond to that was they were like, well, you're allowed to direct water off of someone else's property from a different watershed to where you are to make your land usable. But the downside is, say your family homesteaded here in Colorado in like the 1880s or something. So they have a water right from the 1880s. And say this is not the amount it would be, but we're just going to pretend for simplicity. It's like 10 acre feet. You have to use all 10 of those acre feet every watering season. And if you use eight, two or three years in a row, the government's just going to be like, cool, you just get eight. And that's it. And unfortunately, those water rights are tied to property rights. So when you sell a piece of land, like say your family's 1880s ranch, some investor could buy it just for those water rights because the water rights are so valuable. And that is happening throughout Colorado. Investors are coming in and buying really old water rights and they're holding them with the intent to sell them back. But the whole point is it creates this like chronological hierarchy of rights. And in times of drought or low flows or whatever, the person who diverted water first is the one who gets the water before anyone else. They're entitled to all 10 of those acre feet before anyone else on the stream. And they basically, because wow. of that, they can't save water. Because if you use less water, then you're just punished for it. Wow. Wow. Wait, this is like such a piece of like historical gossip. This is actually ridiculous. There is no incentive for you to save water because then you lose the right to that water regardless of how much there is. This also makes me think that this is not just individual family ranches from the 1880s. There are entire cities that are dependent on their water rights that they've had for the last 200 plus years. Yeah, absolutely. And in the recent negotiations, I just said like a little bit of a jumping ahead, but there the states are negotiating how to use less water because there just isn't enough water available. And six of the seven states in the Colorado River Basin came up with a plan and California was literally like, no, because they have the oldest water rights and they're like, you can take me to court over it. We're not donating like literally any of our water. Well, they were going to donate like 10% or something like not enough for what we need. And they literally at the negotiating table threatened to cut off large cities like Las Vegas and Phoenix before they would cut off their own agricultural water users in California. 
So it's very much like that's a reality that is being discussed at negotiating tables for like legitimate legal contracts going forward. I am almost at a loss of words. I'm so taken aback by this because this is so cutthroat and it's all based on a very flawed act from 1880. This is absolutely crazy. And like in the state of Colorado, this isn't just like a law. This is enshrined in our constitution. Our constitution was like built around this doctrine of prior appropriation. So we would have to do crazy amounts of changes to change that. And what's wild to me is when I go to these conferences or these panels and I talk to people, people are just kind of like, yeah, sweetie, that's how it works. Nobody is like taking a step back and being like, but this makes no sense. Like, why are we doing it this way? But that's the system we're with. And people are really afraid to propose any changes because those senior water rights holders have a lot of power. Oh, absolutely. This is not just a financial problem or a problem of having or not having water. This is also like a very serious political hierarchy that's going on now. And we're talking a lot about Colorado because we're both based there, but you mentioned Mm -hmm. there are seven states in the Colorado River Basin. So when we look at a state like, I'm going to use the example of Nevada, we spoke about Las Vegas, there is a lot of not just indigenous land, but also public land in the state of Nevada. I think it's something like upwards of 80% of the land in Nevada is protected in some capacity. And when you look at states like that, that are just so vast, communities are so wildly spread out, there is a new sense of urgency and desperation when it comes to water rights as well. Or if you look at Utah, the cities in Utah are are quite spread apart and they're also not nearly as populated as some of the other uh, cities that we may think of, especially in California that are dependent on the Colorado River Basin. And so it's this kind of like every man for himself problem when it comes to communities. So while states are negotiating, even within the state, you have huge discrepancies on who can or cannot use that water. And depend on absolutely, absolutely. And like the conference I went to most recently was really fascinating to me because when everybody was in on like stage, there were there was a lot of talk of like collaboration and we need to work together. But on the day when the states were actually supposed to come together and have discussions, uh, the discussions devolved so badly that the catered lunch that was planned for everybody together ended up being served in separate rooms where each state had their own lunch because they were not willing to interact with each other. Um, so like it's. It's really dire. I know like people are really afraid of like alarmism, but like we are really, really facing a very real possibility of like the Colorado River system collapsing because the state officials cannot come together and agree on something. And up until like January 31st, that included most of the states. But as of January 31st, six of the seven states got on the same page and were like, okay, this is what we need to do. One of the things they propose is like they have to account for like evaporation which is something that we're not doing right now, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Zooming out and just going back to what you were saying, I also think it's really important that you mentioned that there's a lot of indigenous land throughout the basin. One of the largest reservations in the basin is the Navajo Nation. And one in three homes on the Navajo Nation lacks access to basic drinking water. And like nationwide, about 48% of tribal homes lack access to basic drinking water. And it's really especially disappointing in the Colorado River Basin because legally, The tribes of the Colorado River Basin are entitled to about 30% of the water within the basin. So about a third of the water that's available. But a lot of those tribes are still fighting for that water in court. And even if they won the right to have that water in court, a lot of them don't have the 
funds to deliver it. So that water is like sitting in a reservoir somewhere and they just lease somebody else to use it because they don't have a pipeline to get it to their people. And the Navajo Nation has some of the largest water rights in the entire basin. All of those water rights date back to the dates that treaties were signed with those people. So they have very, very old priority dates, but they were not invited to the negotiating table when the Colorado River Compact was decided. So um, yeah, a lot of those indigenous tribes are just like really lacking the access to water that they're legally entitled to. I'm really, really glad that you mentioned that. And I'm really glad that you mentioned funding for infrastructure, because this is not just an issue now of water rights or of even locations of these communities, because very arguably some folks will say like, oh, we should just move closer to the reservoir, right? There's always going to be that discussion historically. And in a lot of towns in Colorado, that was the case um, until like a hundred years ago, towns would pick up and move themselves, right? Closer to reservoirs or closer to the railroad or whatever it may be. So when we talk about indigenous communities and funding for infrastructure, there's this whole other level that it's not just political anymore, but there's this financial component that we're not considering. And it's an entire system, like you mentioned at the top, that needs to be not just revisited and rethought, but really aggressively overhauled in a very short period of time, because there is a sense of urgency here. Absolutely. And up until like literally 2022, it would have been like suicide to say something like that, like political suicide to even mention that we need to revisit the way things are being managed. But in 2022, in like June, Bruce Babbitt, who used to be the Secretary of the Interior, actually came out and said that he believes that the Colorado River Compact needs to be partially rewritten, which was kind of like groundbreaking for such a high up official to say that. But to be fair, he is retired now. So he doesn't have a lot to lose and a lot of skin in the game. I find a lot of times when I can speak to policymakers behind closed doors where they're not necessarily being recorded or being held to their word, they're more aware of these issues than they let on. But the reality is that agricultural water rights holders have a lot of power in the basin and they're really, really afraid of upsetting them. Of course, there's a huge political component here. When I think about even the day-to-day understanding of, again, this sense of urgency that we have around the drought, around water rights, around folks living with this day-to-day and their political officials just taking the time, there are so many players in the room that we're not acknowledging. So I'd love to zoom out even further and talk a little bit about the drought that we are currently in in the West, Mm -hmm. that we've been in, please correct me if I'm wrong, but about 200 years that we've been experiencing some level of drought in the Colorado River Basin. I'd love to talk about that. What's actually going on? Why are we in the situation we are in beyond agriculture? Absolutely. Well, first off, it is a multifaceted issue. I think a lot of people really try to be like, we have less water or we're using too much water, but it happens to be both of them, unfortunately. In the last 20 years, we've seen flows in the Colorado River decline by at least 20%. So we have consistently been receiving less flows than we expected. And even the historical average is lower than what they thought was in the river when they divided it. So in 1922, all the states came together and they were like, whoa, California is like populating way too fast. And they're just going to take all of the water from this river. So we need to like decide how much we want for ourselves. And so the Colorado River was divided into an upper basin and a lower basin, which is an arbitrary line that we made. It's it's not like a literal geographical difference, but they divide it at Lake Powell. So the upper basin states are Utah, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico. And the lower basin states are Arizona, Nevada, California, 
and also includes the country of Mexico, not the state of New Mexico, but the country of Mexico. And at the time, like I said already, they did not involve any indigenous people in these negotiations. So we're just going to start off with like that environmental injustice immediately. But in addition to that, they basically decided that there was going to be 16.5 million acre feet. We measure things in the Colorado River Basin in acre feet. It's a weird measurement, but you can imagine it's like a football field without the end zones, one foot deep in water. That's that's basically the size. The reason we measure it that way is because we used to flood irrigate. So it was the easiest way to say, like, you have three acres. You're going to need three acre feet to flood all three of your acres of one foot of water. So that's kind of where that came from. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you for that. That's a historical vocab lesson. I didn't know I needed. Of course. I think a lot of people are confused about it. But anyways, rewinding 16.5 million acre feet. Turns out that when they made that decision, we had been experiencing like a really wet decade. We had been getting a ton of water and that was way more water than is normally in the basin. In fact, when you look at tree ring data the for the last 900 years, the average is closer to like 14.3 million acre feet. So we're already starting off with like a huge deficit. Like we're already, there's not enough water to begin with and that's without diminishing flows, okay? And then on top of that, we've been using more than 16.5 million acre feet for like, decades. And Lake Powell and Lake Mead and all of the other reservoirs were supposed to act as like savings accounts. So like in years where we had a lot of water, we would just save it and then use it when we didn't have as much water. But the problem is we've just been draining our savings for like year after year after year for the last two decades to the point where now we are about to like break the piggy bank. And by that, I mean like the very literal reality is by July of this year, we may see Lake Powell reach the minimum power generation pool which is something that water policymakers and water managers and reservoir managers are really scared to see happen because there's a couple of different reasons. First off, Lake Powell is responsible for generating power for millions of homes in the Southwest. And I also want everybody to remember that the electrical grid is a grid. It's all connected. And if one source goes down, it can affect the power supply for places that are like all the way across the region. So even if you don't directly rely on Lake Powell for power, it could still result in like people all throughout the West experiencing power outages during times of high demand, like heat waves and stuff like that. The other thing is that once it goes below the minimum power generation pool, there's only these two little river outlets below the dam to allow water to continue flowing into the Grand Canyon. And we've actually only ever used those river outlets one time. And when we did, it started ripping concrete out. So they actually are not super certain of the structural integrity of using those outlets. So like literally the way that the Bureau of Reclamation, the federal agency that manages these dams, phrased it is like it would put the dam into a, an area of operational uncertainty. They're not entirely certain if they would be able to actually do that and, and what the effects would be long term. I cannot um, believe I'm hearing this. I'm sorry. I, I, I can... It's terrifying. I know. What? This is a huge, huge problem. Concrete yes, and... has ripped out in the past and they're like, we're just not sure what's going to happen next. Yeah. Yeah. And then on top of that, like if it gets even lower then the water wouldn't even be able to leave Lake Powell. And then we would see the Grand Canyon for the first like four or five miles before there's any other tributaries completely dry up. And that's really concerning for a lot of ecological reasons. A lot of times when I have these discussions, it seems like the ecological concerns are really put on the back burner, but like the Grand Canyon is world renowned for being this really important ecological haven for these desert riparian ecosystems. And 
Riparian ecosystems are ecosystems that are like in the river and lining the riverbanks, and they account for 80% of the biodiversity in the Southwest. So most of our animals are living there. Biodiversity is required for a functioning ecosystem. So it's really important that like that ecosystem stays alive. I also feel like it should be said that the Grand Canyon and the Colorado River in general is like a spiritual being and many of the indigenous people's creation stories or spiritual beliefs. I'm not necessarily equipped or prepared to speak on behalf of any of them, but I do know that like to damage the river in such a way is like spiritually damaging to them. It's not just like, oh no, the river is dying. It's like they they feel that they're damaging their creator. I don't know how to describe it any better than that, but it's really sad when I hear them talk at conferences because they're just like, please, please acknowledge like the the sanctity of this ecosystem and the important role it plays. And then on top of that, even as the water is getting lower, if they're releasing it through those two outlets, uh, they stock Lake Powell with an invasive fish species known as the uh, smallmouth bass. Smallmouth bass is known for outpredating all of the native fish species in the Colorado River Basin, including one that's my favorite. It's called the humpback chub. You should Google it. It's literally like the ugliest fish on earth. So ugly, but like it's important for the ecosystem. It's been here for millions of years. Well, basically smallmouth bass only like the water that is uh, like warmer up by the surface. And so they figured it would never escape the dam into the Grand Canyon. But as the water has gotten lower and lower, the warm water has gotten to where they can escape. And they were able to find smallmouth bass in the Grand Canyon in like July of last year, which they were calling like an ecological nightmare. There have been fish biologists who have dedicated their entire lives to recovering these species and all of their work has just been like wiped off the table because of this this new species being introduced. And then it gets even worse because if we keep ignoring the problem, then Lake Mead could reach Deadpool. And Lake Mead is not the final, there's a couple of reservoirs below, but the, the largest dam between the rest of the states and California. So all 25 million people that rely on water in California would not be able to access any Colorado River water if Lake Mead reaches Deadpool. That includes the entire city of Los Angeles, a significant portion of San Diego, although San Diego has been investing in water reclamation facilities. But it would also account for the Imperial Valley. And the Imperial Valley is a really important agricultural region for our country. Um, So yeah, there's a lot at stake. We're facing like really disastrous scenarios. And I think People in the basin are trying to be like, no, 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 it's fine. But I really do think that the public needs to understand like what's at stake. I, again, am almost at a loss for words here. I'm stressed out just listening to you talk about this. I do not believe that the public understands the sense of urgency. I am in the space. I live in the space. I work in the space. And I don't think I fully understood even how many different facets of the drought we need to address. And I think the other challenge here is then when you are discussing these issues with people, whether it's at conferences or in real life or on TikTok, you're also faced with this challenge where you don't need to scare people so much that they stop caring, right? And there's this level of science communication that is a really strange balance between making people understand the sense of urgency and this impending doom, quite frankly, and then not allowing them to feel the full weight of it right away. So how do you balance that? How do you get people to care about this issue without turning them off completely? Because it is really scary. I mean, it's a struggle for me. I think humor is really important. I try to crack a lot of jokes in my videos. I try to make what's happening like relatable. 
when I see good things that are happening, I try really hard to focus on them. I'm going to be totally honest. It sure does seem like the algorithm is more interested in the scary things. For example, I get a lot of comments that are like, well, what are the solutions? It's like, I post a solution video like every week, but it never gets more than like a couple thousand views. Like, I don't know why, but uh, the, the solutions are out there. They're on the table. People are looking at them. We just like need people to actually use them. And then also I'm going to be totally honest. Like, I don't always succeed. I get comments sometimes. They're like, dude, I had to unfollow you for a little while because this was like really stressing me out. And I'm like, trust me, dude. I know I'm living in it. <laughs> I, I can say with complete frank honesty that my mental health has never been worse since I started my platform. And it's definitely a struggle for me. And it's a combo of like, you know, I think it's unhealthy for any human being to interact with 50,000 people on a daily basis, but also just like constantly being like, I'm like steeping in this information. You know, when people are like, am I taking crazy pills? Like, that's what it feels for me. It's like, am I, am I taking crazy? Like, is anybody else seeing this happen? Because I feel like I'm the only one especially when I go to conferences, because they're all just kind of like, yeah, that's how it is. And you're just like, what? <laughs> like, uh, uh, yeah. I went to a conference recently that was a film screening of a film called Farm to Faucet, which I would love to go deeper into in a second here. But the point was that it was all about water rights in Colorado. It was at the campus in the college that I, I went to and in my town, it's called Fort Lewis College. Most of the people who were there were either farmers and ranchers or they were students. I just came because I was like interested. But the panel was like, a water lawyer, our municipal water manager, a recreational water user, like a, the Dolores River Boating Advocates was there. The lawyer said something along the lines of, I don't believe we have a supply and demand problem. We have a dreams versus realities problem, which like, A, is just like, what? Okay. And then this like little freshman who was so naive, I was so proud of him, he raised his hand and goes, well, like, if that's the case, like, how long can we afford to keep dreaming? And it was just like pin drop silence. Like he said the quiet part out loud, when you're in those spaces, you literally just like can't say those things. People are just like, no, we don't want to hear that. It's crazy. <laughs> Gosh. And I think that there's also, even on the topic of dreams versus reality, there is this element of romanticism when it comes to the Colorado River Basin. And perhaps you can speak to this just given your background, given uh, the jobs that you've had in the Colorado River Basin. People love the idea of like getting out West and doing something really rugged and rafting the river for the first time in their life with their family or, you know, taking an RV to the Grand Canyon. There's these ideas that people have in their head of like this grand, fabulous Western adventure, especially if you're not living in it. And when you actually get into it, not only is your dream of, again, rafting the Grand Canyon or doing the Lake Powell boat trip of your dreams. Like it's not just about dreams anymore. Like these are things that also will not exist. Right. And it's not just about romanticizing the recreation that we have in the Colorado river basin. Like this is literally life and death. Yeah. And I think recreation is one of the best tools for conservation back in like the 1950s. They were damming every river they could out West. They were like, we're going to put a dam here. We're going to put a dam here. It was, it was crazy. Uh, there was this guy named Floyd Dominey and he was just like, all of the rivers out West need to be tamed. And they proposed to put a dam in a place called Echo Park, uh, which is on the Green River in Dinosaur National Monument. I recently had the opportunity to raft it and it was really cool. It was really gorgeous. But basically they were going to put a dam there. We actually got to raft through like the place where they drilled holes, where they were seeing if they could like put supports in to build the dam. 
But the Sierra Club, and specifically the president of the Sierra Club at that time, his name was David Brower, took a bunch of like famous writers, actresses, senators, a bunch of different people on rafting trips through this section. And it generated enough interest and like public respect and love for this place that they were able to fight that dam and the dam didn't get put in. But David Brower's compromise was that they built Glen Canyon Dam, which is what built Lake Powell. And he considers that like his largest failure in life. Because the ecosystem that was where Lake Powell is was considered 10 times more beautiful than the Grand Canyon. There were just like these little side canyons everywhere. Yeah, there's a woman named Katie Lee who like she wrote a ton of books about it. She was a huge activist. But the point being that like that was the birth of the commercial rafting industry was those trips. That's when they started rafting became like a popular activity for people to go participate in. There were a couple of other factors at play, like World War II had just ended. So there was all these like military surplus rafts that people could buy for pretty cheap and just like start a rafting company. But David Brower's campaign put rafting and rivers and that like rugged outdoors idea at the very forefront of the American mind with the intent of protecting these ecosystems. So I do see it as a tool if we use it the right way. I don't think the rafting industry is really operating that way anymore. Wow. Thank you so much for that history lesson. I have briefly heard about the Sierra Club trip to Dinosaur National Monument, but I didn't realize all of the kind of domino effects that it had, even in not just to Glen Canyon Dam, but the just American psyche of what it is to be out West and to conserve public lands. My personal hypothesis is that when you are looking at the East Coast, especially cities are closer together, there are far less public lands, there's far less access to the outdoors in the Eastern region of the US. There's a very different concept of what it means to be outdoorsy or a very different concept of what it means to care about the environment. Whereas in the West, where you are constantly surrounded by whether that is natural landscapes or you know someone who's involved in natural landscapes, it's just so much more a part of the culture that you inherently have to care more because it is the environment that you're living in, whether or not you're participating in activities like rafting and hiking and all of these other things. Absolutely. On the river trip that I went on in the green, I was on a writing trip. So it was a writing workshop with the Free Flow Institute. And I did receive a scholarship from the American Whitewater Organization, and my followers also helped fund that trip. So just like huge shout out to everybody who made that happen for me because I could not have gone otherwise. But anyways, it was all women and we were all writing and obviously we're on the river. So a lot of what we're writing about is rivers. And one of my uh, like campmates wrote a whole piece about, I feel like I'm paraphrasing and I'm not going to like deliver it the justice that she did. But she was talking about like the rage it fills her that the rivers that are her home on the east are not given the same love and attention as the rivers on the west. And like she talked about like this exact like almost elitism towards these environments in the west, that they're more important than the environments in the east. And there's more effort put towards conserving them than the environments in the east. And I, I totally agree. Honestly, if I had more familiarity with issues happening in the East, I would report on them more, but I'm just not like there and on the ground. And one of the things that I really try to maintain with my platform is accuracy. I do not want people to be going around being like, that girl is telling lies. Like, I really want people to know that like I'm doing my research. So I don't want to report on things that I don't know enough about, but I do think that that is an issue. Like water conservation is important everywhere, even when there's excess water. We have water quantity issues out here in the West, but there's still water quality issues out in the East, and they're just as important. I really appreciate your note on accuracy. And I also think this speaks more broadly to 
activism in general and these discussions that we were having at the top where people are just simply not talking about water enough or talking about environmental issues in general enough. There's this really fabulous kind of, or like almost mission statement that you can give to folks or like this very important inspirational message of your platform that it's about talking about things that you care about and also advocating for the places that you live. So you mentioned I'm on the ground in the West. This is what I know. This is what I talk about. And similarly, folks in the East Coast can do that. People can do that even more hyper-locally in their area for their water systems or their environmental systems around them. And there's this level of activism that needs to be hyper-personal and also extremely local for it to be nearly as cared about as all of the other issues that are being pushed down our throats by modern media. Absolutely. I live my life by the words of the Lorax, which are something like nothing's going to change unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot. It's just not. And that's how I feel. Like, I think that if anybody were to look at my platform and take anything away from it, that's not specifically related to water management. I would hope it's that sometimes just talking about what you care about is enough to get the ball rolling. And it's really scary and you have to be really vulnerable because people are going to like come at you and say things that are not super nice. But I am astonished at the amount I have been able to get done and the number of people I've been able to teach just from like here in my bedroom. Like I'm not like, I don't have like a special studio or anything. Like this is just my closet office and I'm, I'm out here for lack of a better phrase, like doing my best to change the world. And I hope that other people see that and understand that like you can do that too. Like for a long time, I thought like, like Greta, I like, I look up to Greta. I think it's amazing what she's doing. And to me, it felt like, but I would never have those opportunities because I don't live in a city and I don't live near a capital. I can't go protest in the way that she could. And like, I guess my advice is just like, find the way that you can where you are and like build that community where you are now. Thank you so, so much for tuning in to our conversation with Teal Leto, the Western water girl. I will have all of Teal's links down below, as well as some additional episodes on the mega drought and the Western water crisis. And I will also have those two books that I mentioned at the top of the episode that Teal recommended, The Emerald Mile and Where the Water Goes, if you're interested in learning more about this. Also have, of course, all of my links down below. I want to know what you thought of the episode. Reach out to me on Instagram, via email, on TikTok, wherever you want to chat. I want to chat with you. I'm looking forward to your feedback. So with that, I hope you have a really fabulous rest of your day and I will see you next week. Bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.